Welcome back, everyone. Today, it's another time for us to talk to someone else. And uh, today we have Life with Dividends, who's actually a dividend growth investor that we met on Twitter. I think we have been following him uh, for a few months now. And then some weeks ago, I think maybe, Guy, it was the same week or the same month when we got the shout out from Guy Spear. We also got a shout out from uh, Life with Dividends or LWD. So that was very unexpected and, and very, very nice. So welcome to our podcast and to our channel. Well, thank you so much for having me on, Matt and Guy. Uh, I just want to say you guys are doing a phenomenal job here with your uh, YouTube channel and your podcast. And uh, I am by no means, you know, any in any <laughs> way or shape or form a better investor than Guy Spear. Um but you know, you know, a good word from guys peer means so much, and I, I, that by itself is a pretty strong testament to uh, the the quality of the work that you guys are doing. So, so great job, and thank you so much for having me on. Thank you very much for your for your kind words, and you know, it was unexpected for us. We have started our YouTube channel a year ago. And uh, we have reached out to, to Guy Spear and then somehow he's very humble and uh, very open to talk to anyone. That's at least our experience. I think the first guest that we had on this podcast was Tom from Investing with Tom. And that's more or less how this got started because somehow Tom has been also interacting with uh, Guy Spear uh, quite a lot. And if I'm not mistaken, LWD, you have started your blog in May 2021. Am I right? That's correct. Uh, it was kind of in cold storage uh, for 2020 because I wasn't even sure what was the right way for me to get started with content creation. Would it be a YouTube channel, cast, blogging at the time was kind of old schoolish. But uh, I'm I'm from a mindset where writing kind of helps me enforce my learnings and uh, makes you know makes all the thought process a little clearer in my head. So, and I'm also a big fan of uh, Howard Marks, who is famous for his memos and his writings. So I kind of use that as a pedestal to kind of, you know, mimic my behaviors in, in that fashion. So that's why the blog got started um, around 2021. But that's right. Great. So basically, if I understand correctly, you started to invest in parallel with uh, starting your career, let's say, as a content creator, and you had this need of sharing your journey and uh, you were looking for the right platform to do so. So maybe if I can ask before diving into investing, like why, like I understand that you, that you say, you know, it helps me when I, when I write, but why did you have this need of, of being out there? Because, you know, we had this discussion with Guy for quite a while before starting a YouTube channel. So I guess we share some of the questions that we had to kind of answer for ourselves. It's a mechanism to kind of A, keep yourselves accountable. And one thing to note, and maybe it's a good habit as such with any investment is whenever you decide to invest in anything, you write down an investment thesis. And the key there is you write it down. You write what you like, what you don't like. And uh, it's an evolutionary process because you might have to revisit that same thesis at, at a later point in time because businesses evolve, patients evolve, right? The COVID pandemic came around the same time, 2020, 20, you know, 2020-ish. So my, some of my theses around businesses also evolved because there were pre-pandemic norms and then there were pandemic norms and then there were post-pandemic norms now. 
So it's kind of easier to revisit what my thinking was at that point in time. You know, people like to do podcasts for the same reason. YouTube channels were great as well. I just kind of got a sense that these mediums weren't quite right for me. Thing was a little more natural, came a little more natural to me. So that's where I decided to do this. And I could document my investing journey the same way, right? How am I doing in terms of my monthly updates uh, for my for my own portfolio? Obviously, there's a uh, there's a restriction in terms of what I can share and what I can't, you know, cannot share because this is the internet. But at least I can put myself and my uh, subscribers motivated, and that's the key there, right? Just motivate others to kind of pick on this journey. Not necessarily be through dividend investing, but generally get into the mindset of staying invested even through you know tough times in the market. Yeah, and actually going back to this, like holding yourself accountable, right? This kind of mantra. I like your blog because every month you have goals that you set out for yourself and then you write down the goals that you have been able to achieve and also those that you have not been able to achieve. So it's a very transparent way of keeping track of your progress and also showing to your followers, your subscribers that, you know, you're not superhuman, right? You have a life, you have a family, you have your nine to five, you have stuff going on like everyone else. And some of the goals are achievable within the time frame and others not and might need to be postponed. But one of the things where you have been pretty, pretty much on track was your dividend income goal, right? So I think last year you reached the goal of $3,000 per year. Now you have the goal of reaching $6,000 per year. Am I, am I right? That's right. That's great. So yeah, that's pretty nice. I, I think I really like it. And I like the fact that you share your portfolio so your subscribers can also see the stocks that you own. I think they're mostly US stocks from what I remember. And uh, yeah, no, I, I think that more or less this is also the reason why Guy and I have started this YouTube channel exactly after COVID-19. And I guess it has been uh, pretty good so far and we hope to keep doing this for quite a while. So maybe Guy, we can start with some more investing related questions if you want. Yes. So earlier you said that uh, so businesses evolve and so we have to reread our thesis and, and reconsider it maybe, but also our understanding evolves, right? Because we get more experience, we read more, we think more, and so hopefully we get better. So how did your understanding evolve in your investing journey? So it, it kind of depends on each business because business is unique in, in its own right. Let me pick one example that's a very popular name in the dividend growth investing community, 3M. 3M, uh, for, I mean, rightly so, it's, it's, it's a dividend king, so generally falls on every dividend growth investor's radar. Here's a nice, you know, business that's been consistently paying out dividends, you know, for the last 50 plus years. Great starting dividend yield. And, you know, it's around as far as industrials and even consumer products. It's there in every household. So it's a pretty popular name, very easy to kind of um, understand in terms of um, its uh, businesses uh, that it's involved with. Um, and OK, so all boxes check out and I go invest into 3M. But is that really the story? Um, you peel one layer of the onion and you see that growth has not been that great over the last five years. Dividend growth by itself has been 
laughably low. Uh, there have been one one cent increases, I think, for the last three years on a trot. And then peel another layer of the onion, and you see that they're involved in massive litigation issues. Two of them, one being with the uh, uh, combat earplugs um, with the army men um, here in the U.S., which is thing that keeps surfacing every now and then on the news here. That's one. Then a second litigation with, um, I think it's called PPFAS. I, I can't remember what the acronym mm -hmm. is, but it's around chemicals that are pollutants uh, in the environment. Mm -hmm. And this is a litigation that's affecting them both in the US and in Europe, if I remember correctly, reading news uh, um, in Belgium and all that. So massive litigation issues as well. So great business on the face of it, plastic dividend growth uh, investment opportunity. From a business standpoint, how does this business navigate these litigation issues are they too heavily involved with different business segments? And is it even legitimate to now think of them as a business that can actually grow strongly in all of these arms? Or do they need to break up uh, into, or do they need to split up into smaller fragments? They're kind of thinking about that. I think there were announcements recently where they're spinning off um, some pieces of their businesses um, um, so there is some thought from the management regarding that. So yeah, a great example, you know, of how a business was like, business is currently doing, and very prudent questions for the investors into the next five, leading into the next five years as to whether this is going to be a great uh, compounder for me, dividends or even otherwise, right? So yeah, that's that's kind of one example that I can throw, and there are several such examples. Johnson & Johnson is another one that come, comes to mind. Uh, Bayer, uh, uh, you know, was another one from the Europe side that's also here involved here in the US. I can think of several ones. And you can kind of draw out a thesis like this where on the face of it looks great, checks out a lot of boxes, but there is a story building underneath where you have to kind of peel the layers of the onion to understand uh, what's going to happen in the short term and then in the immediate long term, right? And then... Like besides the numbers, there's a qualitative aspect in all of this, right? Because since we cannot know the future, we can only see these red flags. But in the end, we have to decide. So typically, dividend investors are almost by definition buy and hold. Maybe not forever, but for many, many years, for the simple reason that dividends are this stream of cash that comes uh, typically quarterly. So it, they're very patient investors. They, they are in for the long run. So how do you balance the buy and hold mentality with these kind of issues that can occur to almost uh, all companies? Yeah, I think this is a this is a very very tricky question not just for dividend growth investors but in general buy and hold investors. Mm -hmm. And um, th there's a dilemma here where I think uh, this is a question that I've been pondering over myself where the typical uh, mantra uh, that you hear you know, in the investing world is, oh, you should just buy these companies and forget about them or or something like that or something to that effect. Buy and all equals buy and then don't even look at this investment because they're long term. Just don't worry about them. But is that really true? Is that really a safe assumption to make? Or do you need to keep constantly evaluating your stance on each of these companies? So 
yes, there's buy and hold. You know, there is that doesn't necessarily equate to buy and forget. It's buy, reevaluate, and then maybe buy, buy, reevaluate. And if there's a drastic change in your investment thesis where you think that, no, this is not going to work out for me in the next five to 10 to 20 years or whatever, there is a case for selling. And um, the selling piece of this is maybe an hundred times more difficult decision than buying. Said investing is easy. Uh, I think there's a Charlie Munger quote that that says that it's not easy or something like that. Or you know, whoever thinks it's easy is is an idiot. Or uh, the the point that I'm making is it's very easy to click a mouse button to buy an investment, but the decision process that goes behind rebuying and keep buying into it as it's uh, as it, as the stock ticker is going down on you, or um, the decision to sell is not an easy process. And that's where your writing of your investment thesis up front can kind of help you because you can revisit that back and say, okay, here's where I, here's here's what my thought process was when I initiated my first position. These hold good right now. Are these going to hold good in the next two years, next three years? And if you have an answer that says no, even one of them, then you can make a case for maybe either holding or selling out completely. It's a tough uh, challenge. Uh, it's not, unfortunately, it's not black and white. There's several shades of gray in between, um, as you might imagine, but that's, that's how it is. That's, what invest, that's the challenge in investing. Yes, we, we could say uh, buy, uh, but verify. Uh, <laughs> yes. But, uh, and it's especially, for, for me, for example, it's even more difficult when the stock price actually goes up and up and up. I mean, recently in the last few days, it has been reported that Warren Buffett uh, increased its stake in a few Japanese companies. And when he started buying these companies a few years ago, actually their price was going up, like close to either all-time high or, or, or very high in historical terms. So in, in that case, it depends a little bit if an investor is more a contrarian or not. But in that case, uh, it could even be more difficult, right? I mean, the, the stock price continues to go up and what do you do? You buy more? It, it's very tricky. Selling is, is more difficult. Um, so for example, I, I don't know if you have like a checklist or some ideas about when to sell. But for example, one very difficult thing is to sell because of valuation. So maybe the business is very good. The stock price has gone let's say, at a valuation in, in terms, for example, simply of ratios, uh, PE, P, P to sales or something that, that is very high historically. So what do you do? These are all questions that I think that everybody has to investigate. But do you have any idea in terms of when to sell? Yeah, I mean, um, the, on the question of if I would sell if a position is really overvalued, I think that's where I let my value investor piece of my brain go to sleep because traditional value investing, i.e. The, the cigar butt style investing, you know, that uh, Benjamin Graham proposed, sort of thought would have told you that if the position is widely overvalued, take the gains and just, you know, sell, right? But I don't subscribe to that. I subscribe more to the Charlie Munger school 
If you have a compounder in effect, how do you know if this position is overvalued at this point and it can't grow any, any further? And are you, by selling out of your position, notion that you're taking all your gains, are you cutting down your compounding tree right at the stem, right there, right? Um, and so uh, his philosophy where you shouldn't inhibit, inhibit compounding uh, when you have the opportunity to do so, um, is I think something that resonates with me because as a even as a dividend growth investor, I were to keep that compounding in intact, you know, another 10, 15 years, my original based on my original yield on cost, the compounding by itself would, you know, would be a multi-bagger, right? And I wouldn't be able to realize those kind of gains by selling out of the position early. So that's an easier aspect of selling. Um, in my opinion. Uh, but the aspect where it gets hard is where it's difficult to quantify the future holds when the business is down and out. And um, I can give one example here, Intel, right? Um, the world hates Intel right now uh, because it's not immediately clear how they're going to get back to the place where they can grab market share from AMD or NVIDIA and if um, Pat Gelsinger and his team can actually come back to a point where their their plans, as far as their internal foundries and all that, is all going to materialize, uh, this is a turnaround play. Um, it's a multi-year um, story where it might you might actually start to see the roots of what they're of the actions that they're doing right now. Maybe tail end of twenty twenty five, early twenty twenty five. That mean you hold or does that mean you sell out and then you know only revisit it back in 2024 and 2025 that's a difficult decision because either way there's no right or wrong answer right you can be a hero and you can say no i can actually stick with my investment and because i believe in pat and his team and i believe in intel's um, long-term growth story and maybe there's risk that i've already factored in with this investment or you can very well take the claim that look it's anyway you know, a two to three year story. Why? Why invest? What, the opportunity cost of deploying that capital in a business that's possibly going to grow better than Intel. The opportunity cost is real, so I hold my capital with Intel during this time. Yeah, it, it, it's a reason why it's supposed to be hard. <laughs> it's a reason why you don't have, uh, you know, multiple multi billionaires and uh, whatnot. Um, so yeah, it's it's not easy. It's it's a individual individual judgment that you have to make based off of your background and your biases. There's no right answer. There was a Peter Lynch quote that was uh, selling your winners and holding your losers is like cutting the flowers and watering the weeds. Like when yeah. when something goes up and you sell, maybe you're doing exactly the the wrong thing. But Yes, maybe some more general question about when to buy, because it's also, I mean, for example, Warren Buffett is big on uh, on focus investing, right? And uh, and probably Steve Jobs said that uh, to focus is to say no. So we we should say no to a lot of possible investments. When to buy, and um, do do you get inspiration from great investors or from, of course, lists? like lists of, of dividend aristocrats, uh, dividend um, champions, etc. Yeah, I do. I mean, uh, that's always a great place to start. 
because uh, yes, you can make a case saying that look, past performance doesn't necessarily guarantee future performance. I get that, but when there is no data available, past performance is not a bad place to start, right? Um, so you can actually look at these lists for initial ideas. I usually, to your point about saying no, that's a pretty important lesson that I've derived from uh, Phil Fisher. Phil Fisher, one of uh, Warren Buffett's, um, I would say, investing teachers, you know, somebody who he holds in high regard. It's a, it's a good process to actually start off with a big list and keep narrowing it down till you end up with a basket of stocks that you think are really worth analyzing further as far as deep dive and looking at fundamentals and all that. So you start off by saying no to a lot of businesses. And um, I think you should be open to being challenged on your investments because I know a lot of folks get defensive when somebody you know questions you and says, why are you invested in X, Y, and Z? Because it's not really performing that well. And, you know, your valuations are wrong. Uh, your, your, you know, discount rates are all bogus. Uh, in, in your valuation, yeah, I get it. Um, and but if you fight your um, inner defensiveness, and you can actually say that, look, the point that these critics are bringing up is something that I haven't thought about and haven't factored in. You kind of um, let that uh, let these, I guess, uh, two different selves battle out within your head, and build up a stronger investment uh, thesis around your um, around your positions. So, uh, so uh, I guess I'm digressing a little bit. You want to start off by saying no a lot more, dial down um, and filter out to a basket of stocks and be open to the possibility of being challenged. Again, you need to evaluate, you need to verify. You might be overlooking some aspects and um, yeah, ultimately you end up with a case where, um, or, or a selection of stocks where you have developed enough conviction in them saying that they can withstand the test of time, provided some catastrophe like COVID or something doesn't come around and it disrupts everything. That's actually a good example where investing and life go hand in hand, right? Because for what you were saying basically translates into not being so attached to your ideas or not thinking that your ideas are what you are, right? And, and kind of always challenging yourself and accepting that Maybe in most cases you will be wrong and being ready to, to change your idea if you rationally think that that's a good decision. So I think that kind of like understanding this more and more when you invest is going to make you a better investor, but also probably a better man, um, I would say. So that's kind of actually a, an interesting path going forward in, in life. And maybe just interrupting this a little bit and then Guy maybe will ask you some more questions on investing. I got pretty captivated by one of your uh, blog posts when you talk about financial freedom and uh, because you know in general it's kind of pretty common to say at least on the web when we talk about financial freedom to say that kind of like everyone would like to escape the rat race and would like to escape the, the nine to five but then you also pose the interesting question like what what do i do if i actually reach financial freedom like will i be laying on the beach for the rest of of my time w would it be boring and i guess your idea is that it will get boring and so you have actually a pretty atypical i would say view of what financial freedom 
can be and, and means for you. So I don't know, maybe can you elaborate this a little bit for our followers and, and viewers? I think you have a very interesting point of view here. Uh, I think a lot of uh, phrasing around the nine to five job is it's a rat race and there's an implied assumption that you're supposed to hate it, right? You don't really like it. You're doing it because you want to earn a paycheck and you're kind of getting by, right? You're just, you know, you're supporting your family. So you kind of have to do it. But is that really true for everyone? I, I would imagine a lot of folks are stuck in a job where they don't necessarily like what they're doing. But there, there are a certain piece. Uh, there are certain individuals who love what they do. I, for for instance, enjoy what I do. It, yeah, there are aspects to that job by itself that I wish I, I could change. But for the most part, I enjoy what I do. Having said that, I mean, if I were to go, you know, not do what I'm doing, live the so-called retired life where I'm sitting on a beach sipping martinis or your, your favorite cocktail or whatnot, maybe one day, two days, three days. After that, I'll be bored out of my mind. feel sick to my stomach, you know, thinking this is not what I want to do. I want to do something productive. I want to do something meaningful. It really be for a paycheck, but I want to do something. And that's, that's another viewpoint that I have where retirement doesn't always equate to vacationing. <laughs> Retirement might be, okay, I, I have free time, but I want to have a choice as to what I want to do with my free time. And that could very well be continuing maybe part-time on my nine-to-five job, maybe work on a part-time basis, and then do something else with the, my remainder time. Maybe, you know, spend more time with my kids or my grandkids when I'm in retirement or whatnot, right? So that is an, that is more in my mind, uh, the view of financial freedom that, that I resonate with, where I have control of my time rather than escaping the nine to five rates. I think that's a false, um, may not necessarily be an accurate description for everyone's nine to five. Yeah, and I agree, actually, we had EDGI on this podcast, and I know that you have also been on the Dividend Talk podcast. And he also has an interesting view on this. He says, basically, I like what I do. But I also like to, to know that I have an income stream that doesn't depend on my 9 to 5. And that gives me peace of mind. It gives me also the possibility one day, as you said, to go part-time or to say no thanks. But, you know, for the time being, I love what I'm doing. And so I'm, I'm kind of happy to, to, to be working on my 9 to 5 and having this on the side, which is also growing as time goes by. And so I think it's a very good position to be in. And I also read that you would like to maybe then go to academia or at least being an educator because you like to kind of teach the young generation. So maybe I'm speculating, but in a way your blog is going in that direction, right? Because you are in a way educating whoever is willing to read your blog posts. And we always said here with Guy that we would have loved to be initiated to the world of finance much, much earlier in our lives. So maybe that could be also a very nice goal to do when you are retired, quote unquote. Absolutely. I mean, getting, I think the younger generation on the path to investing and maybe in general, not investing, but better, be better uh, managers of their personal finance. I, you know, not have them make rash financial decisions. Uh, I know we're all been like, you know, in our teenage uh, 20s, we like to buy that sports car or we want to go, you know, spend time buying fancy electronic devices that 
that really don't, are not that critical, are not that necessary. Uh, we want the latest gadgets and all that. But are these really something that you should be doing, right? I think giving that mindset, getting into that mindset is something that's very, very valuable. Because the way I look at it, if you set one generation right, there's a whole tree as far as the subsequent generations from that same individual that are also set on the right path. The value of that is uh, is multifold, right? Um, uh, to that regard, I also talked about maybe sponsoring a young child's education. Imagine not having to go to a school and having to go to a school, having one child set on the right path with the right education, earning a you know a degree and maybe you know earning a job eventually imagine what that would do to the generation that follows from that child tree uh, the, the incremental value add is, is significant from that standpoint so i value that as a much more worthwhile pursuit in my retirement so if i have funds or something as opposed to blindly giving it to a charity i think i would like to do something like this <laughs> yeah well, that's great it's basically compounding goodwill and by being a, a good example and by setting the good example, that's definitely a good starting point. Good stream of cash gives us optionality. So if, if that is something that is resonating with you, and for sure it is something that resonates with us, so we have this in mind as well, I think it's a very worthwhile and noble goal to have rather than, you know, spending your dividends in less noble ways, let's say, which is, of course, totally fine. It's not a criticism, but for sure it resonates with us. Right, right, right. I mean, I view my portfolio, and I, I wish the same with most of your uh, listeners and watchers as well. Don't think of your portfolio as something that dies with you. It's a multi-generational thing, because um, you can very well pass on this to your, you know, hires um, or your your spouse or whoever, you know, survived after you've, after you're gone. Yeah. So it's, it's not something that you have to blow right away because you're dying tomorrow or whatever. Right. Uh, and the value of setting your future generations um, with a good financial standing, there's, there's, uh, yeah, that's a pretty valuable pursuit in my mind. Right. So this tells us about your long-term orientation, which is multi-generational. It's a very particular orientation. I mean, typically many market participants are looking at, um, let's say, earnings projections like two quarters out and, and doing this and that and trading. But when the goal is to, as the, the Norwegian fund says, uh, safeguard and build financial wealth for future generations, then also your actions are, 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 are affected by that, right? Because you have this very clear goal in mind. So when you buy or sell or consider your investments, do, do, do you think about this kind of background? Yeah, I, well, usually I would think of this uh, investment. So in general, it always helps to think of your businesses as something that you're part owner of. And you want to try and question as to whether this business is going to be relevant in 20 to 30 years from this time, from the time when you're investing position in. And in fact, what are the growth drivers that will help them sustain themselves for that 20 to 30 year time span? And this question becomes more prevalent with um, 
dividend kings and dividend aristocrats who are supposedly, you know, in their mature part of their of their life cycle. I'm thinking mostly companies like 3M that I've already mentioned, uh, Johnson & Johnson. Do they have enough gas left in the tank such that it can them for the next 20 to 30 years? Uh, because, yes, they have been great dividend payers up until now, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to do the same thing for another 20 to 30 years. Are they spending enough on R&D? having are they making the right business moves um, in terms of uh, sustaining uh, their business johnson and johnson was one because now they are going to be spending off their consumer health the, the consumer health portion of their business uh, at the tail end of uh, 2023 i believe and so it's a pure play pharma and med tech company so do they have enough R&D uh, drugs in their pipeline, if, if you think the pharma business as a pure play pharma? Uh, and what, how does, you know, what does their approval pipeline look like? Well, how many drugs do they have in, in phase one? What's their reject rate? What's the amount, number of patents that they are coming up with? Questions that are pretty important to help unravel whether this business is going to be able to grow uh, during the next decade or two. Um, and you kind of have to make this uh, question prevalent with each investment. Obviously, you know, with each investment, the dynamics are different. Um, you know, with uh, some somebody like a Tiro Price, for example, another popular dividend growth investing stock that's actually, as a stock price is concerned, being handled, you know, very recently. Um, look at their uh, balance sheet rock solid so great cash flows they recently acquired uh, a fintech firm called retiree uh, with their available cash so um, they're using their balance sheet to kind of make sure that they grow up to uh, grow in the future but you also have to answer the question as to what how are the, ca- uh, the inflows and outflows going to be impacted for the next 10 years is T. Rowe Price's business uh, model going to be prevalent with passive investing taking a lot more of a stronger stance, you know, in an investing community? Are active funds going to you know, start, slowly start seeing the end of the road, if you will? These are questions and there's very, very dif- different answers that you might come out with depending on who you, who you talk to, but that's, that's the challenge. And maybe if I can ask one question, like, uh, because I'm always interested in how you, everyone that we interview is able to balance all the things that they're doing, right? Because usually we have someone that like in your case is an engineer, then you are also a husband and a father, and then you have this blog. So I, I was curious, like for you, how it is to handle all of this together and also how you see the blog going forward, because I really like your logo. Like your logo for those of you who haven't seen it is basically a tree with dollars that are kind of like these fruits hanging fruits and then there's a family on the ground looking at the tree and you can think about this as your family or maybe as the next generations right going back to what you were saying before so i think that your goal is pretty clear even for the logo but then at the same time it must be hard to handle all of this together so i was just curious about your experience and also where you see your blog going forward, maybe if you're going to be starting a YouTube channel. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, 
It's not so. It's not easy. Uh, is there is the first answer because I, my my free time kind of varies sporadically because you know uh, after I'm done with my nine to five, usually the kids and the wife, you know, want my free time. So there's very very little free time available as such where I can sit down and and do editing. That's why kind of one of the reasons why I did not go into YouTube and podcasting was because usually I have to do this after the kids have gone to bed, by which time I'm already, for the day, <laughs> I'm already knocked out and tired. And so, um, whereas blogging, I'm usually drafting my post in my head as I'm driving to work or driving back from work. Um, so I know exactly what I'm going to be writing about. And so when I'm in front of a system and my keyboard, the thoughts are already there, penned in my head, and I just have to, you know, basically vomit it out <laughs> onto the onto the screen. My blogging kind of fits the bill in that sense, but it's not easy. It's the passion. It's the passion that you want to do, right? You want to do this. You don't do this. You skip on it, and you kind of lost it from that point, right? It's very easy to kind of give up on this. So I've made it a resolve that. Uh, if not for nothing, I'm just going to post my monthly updates on for, as far as my portfolio. At least that is something that I will do because in a way that will force me to look at my portfolio on a monthly basis. And actually, that's a good thing with dividend growth investing because I rarely get a chance to look at my stock portfolio majority of the month. I don't even know what's happening until I read about some news and then I go into log into my portfolio and see, oh, it's a red in there okay whatever right <laughs> uh do i is there something that's on value where i can buy something maybe or are there any outstanding buy orders that got triggered yes there's that got triggered oh whatever okay that's good log off get back to work right um and that's i think the notion that i recommend most people follow is because tracking stock tickers live on your desktop while you're doing your nine to five tattle side window is not healthy. You're not doing justice to either your nine to five or your portfolio. And you end up making rash decisions because some stock dropped by percent on some news that flew. And then it just, you know, jumped up by 5% the next very next day. So, so what did you end up doing really? Did you, and did you even look at your valuation or you were you just following the news and did something? So I think there are bad habits that that cultivates. And thankfully for me, dividend investing kind of remedies the bad habits <laughs> uh, as, a, as a strategy, which is why I like it, right? Yeah, it's great. And actually on, on giving up, right? I think we shared this with Guy that it's, it's very easy because it uh, takes a very long time to see the fruits of what you have done. But if you manage somehow to be consistent with whatever frequency fits for you, then you're going to see some results. And for us, I think one of the things that we have liked the most is to be part of our community. Even though we are not dividend growth investors per se, we have been able then to be in contact with you, with EDGI and with so many other people on YouTube and on Twitter. And that's probably what we like the most about it, that we have been rewarded by this relationship and exchanges right guy that we have had on uh, i mean since we started it and that we would have not had otherwise so i think we are pretty grateful for this and you know such an interview such a chat for today is, is the perfect example we would have never known about you and we would have never been able to share ideas and talk for 
more or less an hour, 40, 45, 50 minutes. Thank you very much. And I mean, I don't know, Guy, if you had some more questions, but we have been disturbing LWD for almost an hour yes. now. So maybe we could also say that we finish here for now. And we never know, maybe in one year we're going to talk again because for sure we're going to keep following him on his blog and on Twitter. And so we are looking forward to seeing the results of this consistency, right? Both in the blog and in investing. So thank you. Thank you very much, LWD. It was a pleasure. And hopefully we will stay in touch. Absolutely. And once again, thank you so much, Guy and Matt, for having me on. I feel honored because I think uh, to share, I, I, to your point, you know, I wouldn't have known about the existence of such a high quality channel uh, on YouTube because it's a pretty saturated space with several you know, YouTubers around here. Um, so it's great that, you know, I, I get to interact with you guys and learn from from you know your learnings as well so this is this is awesome this is fantastic and yes by all means would be very very happy to do this again because it's an evolving process like we discussed right like in in a year's time you guys would have new learnings to share with me and i would be more than happy to lap them up and better investor from from that thank you very much thank you very much yeah very kind and uh, we're gonna see you soon bye bye